This episode is supported by Primal Technologies. Primal offers secure and cost-effective data privacy solutions for your organization. It generates a synthetic alternative without disclosing your confidential data. Check it out at primal.io. P-R-Y-M-L Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco podcasting from the regular office of Leuven in Belgium. Today we continue the series about Rust for machine learning. And in this second episode, I'm not alone. I am with Mr. Luca Palmieri. <laughs> Hi, Luca, how are you doing? Hello, everybody. Thanks a lot, Francesco, for having me. Super happy to join. My name is Luca. I work in London. An Italian expat, just like Francesco, different part of Europe. Currently working as a lead engineer at TrueLayer Financial Technology. And I studied and joined the industry working in the machine learning space. So initially as a data scientist, as a machine learning engineer, and eventually actually more as a software engineer. And on the side, I've been for the past two years, more or less, contributing to different machine learning open source efforts, uh, mostly in the Rust programming language. Cool, this is great. I'm sure that the audience of Data Science at Home podcast will enjoy this episode because in fact you have been kind of in between production environments and uh, machine learning, you know, like being the data scientist and the data engineer sometimes at the same time. Am I right? Yeah, you're right. Um, I had the chance to work mostly in small companies, so startups. And when you're a small startup, you don't have the luxury of having kind of a data science team doing their data science things in the background, especially if you're trying to build a machine learning product. So you want whoever understands machine learning to be working on building something that your users will get to see. And so there's a lot of pressure, a lot of product pressure to get that machine learning models out for somebody else to use. And that means you need to get machine learning in production. It was a little bit of a bat space by fire. So trying to understand how to do this, how to make it work, how to cooperate with different people. And even though it has been difficult, I think it's been very interesting experience in the last three years. So understanding what it actually takes to take machine learning to people who want to use it. So to embed it into something that it's live and interactive most of the time. Right. So this, in fact, kills the misconception of uh, machine learning as uh, a, you know, the activity of uh, bringing a model from a Jupyter notebook into production in, uh, you know, in a couple of commits. I mean, it's not the same thing of thinking about machine learning as a prototype that is running in a, in a notebook as a model that is, in fact, being served in a production environment. And you can tell us definitely a very nice story about how much more complex this scenario uh, is, in fact, when you talk about machine learning in production environments. What does it really mean, machine learning in production? How would you define this? So there's that famous um, picture, and I think most people who follow this podcast probably have seen when there is code of a machine learning product, and there is that small, small, small square which says machine learning code, 5%. And then there is the other 95% around this is other code that does other things. 
I like to say that taking machine learning to production has all the challenges of taking a very classical software product to production plus the machine learning challenges. So you have, how do I cooperate with other people? So how do I get different data scientists and software engineers to work interactively on the same piece of software? Once I release that software in a production environment, so I finally have user using it, how do I understand how that software is performing? So how do I know if my model is spitting out something which makes sense? If my model has biases, if my model is behaving differently because the data of my production environment is perhaps different from the data I used to train it, and maybe the benchmarks I'm doing are not necessarily representative. How do I understand if it satisfies a lot of those non-functional requirements that you generally have in a production environment? So how long does it take to save a production? And is that quick enough for that model to be, for example, in an interactive flow? Or will the user be waiting a long time to see a prediction? Uh, is it erroring? How much is it erroring? Can it handle this amount of load? How do I scale it? And then there are all those challenges that come over managing that product over time, right? So a joke in the software engineering community is that programming is what you do once you go there and write some stuff and then release it. While software engineering is programming integrated over time. And that's exactly what it is for machine learning in production. Like Jupyter Notebook, yeah, get the model together, you can do a prototype and that's one thing. But running that prototype in a live environment over six, 12 months, a year and a half is a very different experience. For example, you will have used data to train it and the data will change over time. How do you keep track of that data changes? How do you keep track of all the manipulations you're doing on top of it? How do you make sure that you're not making mistakes? All those challenges compound, and it's a much, much, much more complicated proposition. I like to say generally to people who are starting in uh, products that they eventually foresee becoming machine learning products, to generally start without a model. Just start with a very simple heuristics, pure software, deterministic, what we used to call an expert system, and get it out. And if it eventually needs to be more complex, you make it more complex. But definitely taking ML production as an overhead that you need to be conscious of and you need to account for on your plan. Of course, when it comes to machine learning in production, there are a lot of technologies that pretty much depend on the, uh, for example, the type of model that you're uh, putting in prod. Uh, now, what are the typical technologies that you have seen so far? Well, as you said, uh, a lot of the technology choices are generally dictated by the environment in which that machine learning product is supposed to run. So machine learning products, of course, need to be able to talk to the other components. Uh, so you might have your ML product, which is supposed to speed out predictions, for example, to classify images or other types of data. And that will have to be made available to other services running in your infrastructure. And so you might be able, you might need to deploy your machine learning model as an API. I see very often people wrapping uh, Python machine learning models in a Flask API or a Fast API. API, well, that sounds a little bit weird. But anyway, uh, or people interacting with queues, uh, so trying uh, to do batch predictions and consuming data from queue systems of different kinds. So generally, what you, you will have, you're going to have your machine learning model, which is going to be written in Python or R, depending on the type of environment you're using. You might have your API to expose it. Uh, you might either use a REST API, so classic HTTP uh, communication. You might be using something like gRPC if you want to have different types of data. If you're fancier, you might be using something like Apache Arrow or more uh, 
optimized uh, data formats uh, for data exchanges in scientific computing. And you will have all that monitoring stack that you generally find in software products. So for example, for the models we run at TrueLayer, you will have Prometheus integrations to understand how many predictions you're serving per second, what's the throughput, what's the error rate, what's the latency. You're going to have open tracing to understand how your ML API integrates uh, with the rest of the architecture. And all of these things, of course, uh, put a lot of strain over developing a machine learning product. So you need to think about it holistically, not just uh, the uh, specific uh, model you're putting into production. So another thing that is very often used and we use as well uh, for developing is a lot of attention posed on our CI pipelines. So having an environment in which you version all the data that go into the model and then having all those models stored as artifacts which map one-to-one -one with the data used to train so that you can always go back and say, I had at this point in time, this specific model in production, which was used and trained using this data. And if that model is malfunctioning, I need to be able to go back and find exactly how I came to that model and ideally be able to, to reproduce it. So you need the classic GitHub code versioning as well as data versioning. Well, I think this is a great summary that uh, uh, will definitely make the typical data scientist aware of how complex, how difficult it can be to rethink machine learning models whenever you are you know, thinking to integrate them with the rest of the infrastructure or you know, the other services that are uh, eventually running in the enterprise as well as in small organizations. Now, Luca, let's switch gear, uh, speak about Rust, because Rust is in fact the main topic of this mini-series, Rust and Machine Learning. And uh, I published the first episode in which, of course, I give an introduction of what Rust is and uh, why Rust should be studied and uh, might play a role in the machine learning community. And not only there, of course. Now, my question to you is, why do you think Rust is a, an important language? And uh, what do you think are the top three Rust's best features that would, uh, let's say, convince you to adopt this language for your professional activities? Ah, it's, difficult to, it's difficult to pick and choose. At a high level, I would say the things I love about REST are all the things that characterize a language that was written and experimented with to solve a problem. Like What I love about REST is that you have a very strong type system, probably the strongest type system, the most expressive type system outside of purely functional languages, so outside of Haskell, outside of OCaml, without bringing over all that terminology, all that baggage that very often scares away people from interacting with things like Haskell. Um, you can use the type system to develop programs where you can let the compiler handle a lot of the correctness guarantees that, for example, in a dynamic language like Python, you would be um, checking in unit tests, thousands of unit tests to check that you're actually taking an integer and not a string, and so many other things that over time become very tedious. At the same, <laughs> yeah, I've been there, done that, or you don't do it, and then eventually you regret it. <laughs> That's the way it goes, generally. Um, other things that I love about Rust is uh, absolutely the fact that I feel like it's a programming language that adds something new to the landscape. Now, at this point in time, as most people, after they've been for a couple of years in the industry, I've been playing with very different programming languages. So I've written loads of Python, uh, I've written a lot of .NET, uh, C-sharp mostly. 
uh, I've written some JavaScript, I've written a load of Rust. And even you switch from Python to .NET to Java, yeah, they're all slightly differently and some things are nicer and some things are a little bit less nice. They're all fundamentally object-oriented programming languages and they share the same paradigm. Instead, ownership in Rust is an extremely interesting concept. As you mentioned before, it allows you to avoid or to check at compile time for common mistakes like double free, use after free, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, it gives you a lot of expressiveness just to shape the API of what you're writing to make the programmer who's using it understand how you expect it to be used. And so that type of system, that ownership semantics, and in general, the awesome tooling, like which is not a language feature, but it's as important as the language itself, is the experience of using it you can feel that Rust was designed with making other people productive in mind. It was designed to empower you to do things the best way possible. And it's that community feeling that kind of permeates the language, which I feel is extremely, extremely important. Well, I have to be honest here, uh, the learning curve is quite steep. If, if you start learning Rust, it's, um, you know, it's a bit tricky at the beginning, especially the, uh, the programmer that comes from Python, for example, where you don't have this typing, strong typing, and um, uh, many other constructs in the typical of Rust are pretty challenging for the new programmer. Now, with this said, we have seen a lot of um, uh, programmers coming from Python and uh, switching to, to Rust. Well, I'm not saying switching, but definitely getting more and more familiar with Rust. How is that? I mean, did you find that as well? But it's fairly common, like it's not just Python. Um, a lot of people who are very prominent community members in Rust actually came from the Ruby community. And like Ruby is very much like Python in terms of dynamic languages. JavaScript has been, um, like the JavaScript community has been very, very interested in the development of Rust, mostly for WebAssembly. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive, like I agree, it's weird. But actually, a lot of people who come from those languages, especially, for example, Ruby, who is very much with Ruby and Rails geared towards making the programmer productive in doing something, find Rust interesting. And I think it's very fascinating as a trend because it's not what you would expect. What is your story getting familiar with Rust? When did that happen and why? If you have a story to share with the listeners of the podcast. Oh, it's, it's weird. Like I got into Rust a little bit by chance as I got in, into many things in life, including machine learning. So my CTO and my former company mentioned it to me one day. So well, I saw this cool programming language. You should check it out. So I was like, well, okay, let's check it out. So one evening I started to read uh, the Rust programming book. Uh, when I read it, and I read a little bit more. I said, well, this is interesting. And then I said, well, for the stuff I was doing at the time, so I was mostly working on machine learning models, um, natural language processing. I was using a variety of libraries um, like GenSim and others. And I was curious to see if I could use Rust a little bit to mess around with the algorithms underneath. I think I was always frustrated about when I was writing Python, it was very difficult for me to go and actually implement some of those algorithms in a way which gave me performances which were actually acceptable instead of being just toy experiments. So I looked around uh, and I found Rust in the, sorry, in the array in the Rust community. Um, so this kind of port or equivalent to NumPy. And very timidly uh, making a lot of mistakes, uh, I started to contribute uh, some PRs. So I started to contribute some small methods, some functionality to do statistics. 
after a couple of months, I put together a package called NDRA stats, uh, which is still out there, uh, which contributes a lot of those routines that you find under SciPy uh, for making statistics computation with NumPy arrays. And then eventually, over time, I started to develop more and more open source packages. So uh, I developed Lympha, which I launched six months ago, which was very aspirationally meant to be an equivalent of scikit-learn. I worked some, some bit in the backend community, so working on uh, HTTP mocking or introductory material. So it's a little bit what gets my attention at that point in time and a little bit what I'm working on at the moment. And I find Rust is, and that's one of the powerful things, no matter the problem I'm trying to solve, Rust is a sufficiently general purpose programming language that is almost always a good fit. Maybe not the best fit, but it's always something that you can use to solve that problem. And in that regard, it's very similar to Python. Yeah, I also find that, I mean, I, when I read the first time, the first comments about Rust that was more like a system programming language, I got kind of, you know, disappointed by those statements. And then I said, oh, damn, I will never use Rust for, for machine learning. But then I ended up to... Uh, in fact, one of the first uh, libraries um, closer to, to the machine learning community, which is indeed Lympha. Uh, and I said, well, at least there is, I'm not the only crazy guy here <laughs> thinking about <laughs> Rust for machine learning. Now, to the best of your experience, I mean, so far, uh, do you think Rust is the appropriate or an appropriate language for machine learning? I'm not asking if it's the perfect language, but because I know the answer probably. <laughs> but is it an appropriate language for machine learning problems? So I think the way I approach the problem is going back to Python. I classify a little bit languages in front ends and back ends. So I think Python has been massively successful in capturing the mind share of the machine learning community because it offered at the same time a set of core libraries like SciPy, like NumPy, like Scikit-Learn and others who had underneath very powerful, very optimized C engines. And you could stitch together very easily uh, all these very powerful routines using Python, which is said was this very like easy to use high level language, which made you feel very productive and very quickly iterate over different ideas. Now, as you said, Rust, I don't think it's the perfect language because it doesn't give you that interactive experimenting feeling uh, that you get with Python and probably with Julia as well, to an extent. But I think Rust can very much be a contender, or at least a serious one, for that piece of engine, for that seriously optimized code that you have running underneath your Python libraries. And I think it's in a way, a matter of wasted opportunities and wasted potential. I know Python community and the machine learning Python community is huge. It's probably one of the biggest programming community at this point in time, uh, comparable to the web development community in JavaScript and others. Yet, if I, I feel that if I go out there and I also if I ask this, self, this question to myself and I say, if you're using NumPy and you're kind of comfortable with NumPy's Python API, are you equally comfortable contributing uh, to NumPy's C engine or to scikit-learn C engine? Most people will say no, and I myself am not comfortable because of all the reasons you mentioned before, uh, the level of um, expertise, the level of um, carefulness you need to use when writing those type of routines because of all the possible pitfalls that you can have. So I see Rust as a way to kind of open the gates, like make more people get involved 
driving all those optimized routines, which actually means more people can join the ecosystem and can do more things. Like they can experiment, like who said the scikit-learn is the best possible API for traditional machine learning models. Probably it's not, but the overhead of starting another experiment in that direction is so high if you want to use the traditional C, Python, or C++, Python um, couple, that you just don't do it. I cannot agree more, uh, Luca. Uh, and speaking about libraries and machine learning and Rust, I, you know, I can summarize these three things under one name, Lympha. <laughs> so how far is the Lympha library? Uh, so first of all, what is the Lympha library? If you can uh, summarize it in... Uh, in 10 seconds. In 10 seconds. And, uh, <laughs> maybe less. <laughs> it's a very, very, very ambitious experiment that didn't was not backed by the same amount of effort on a daily basis that I started six months ago uh, to try to tackle the idea of writing a scikit-learn equivalent in the Rust community. And it was prompted by some experiments I mean, that in some clustering algorithms. And I just wanted to see, um, after a workshop I gave at RustFest Barcelona, where I was teaching people how to use NDRay, so how to use basically NumPy in Rust, and I taught them how to write a k-means clustering algorithm. So I said, well, actually, let me try to polish a little bit this implementation, which was very easy, like it was for teaching purposes. Uh, let me see how slower this is compared to scikit-learn. Well, it was quite funny to see that it was actually not that slower. It was more or less comparable. And so I said, well, actually, then it shouldn't be completely crazy to get an array of algorithms and cover more or less the basis of what people believe to be um, the models that every machine learning toolkit should always have. The decision trees, uh, the random forests, um, the linear classifiers and all the other stuff that you generally use on a daily basis, especially in industrial projects. Yeah. And how far, how far would that be? Like how far is the Lympha library from um, an equivalent in scikit-learn and I would say pandas? Well, pandas is completely different beast, uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of uh, different right, let's, experiments. Let's, let's fly low here. <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's say scikit I think the, mo the closest to what is already available is probably scikit-learn, right? Yeah, it's like it learn. I think it's very far. Um, there's been a lot of people interested in the project, not as many contributing. I've also not been extremely good in reviewing and kind of doing the maintainer job, uh, probably because I had underestimated uh, how big the project was. Uh, I think there's going to be another push soon enough by uh, a lot of people are getting interested and a little bit involved into the um, informal Rust machine learning working group. And I hope very much to be able to contribute to Lympha to that working group so that more people can take it forward. But yeah, definitely it's not uh, close to be what scikit-learn is at the moment. Yeah. Well, sure. But I mean, to be fair, scikit-learn has a much longer history in the in the community. So It's I almost mean, 10 years, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that explains. Uh, Rust is, not, is al almost eight or a bit more than eight, the, the whole language. So. Oh, yeah, it, it's fair. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's quite fair. So for sure, what we, uh, you know, what what I understand from from your words is that uh, we definitely need a bit of more community effort to, to scale this product, this uh, uh, the production of these libraries or the implementation of these libraries as quick as possible. 
Um, now, what do you think that it is missing in the in the in the current situation? Like, why the community is not really uh, migrating to Rust, or what do you think would be needed for a community to, you know, en masse move to Rust uh, anytime soon? Well, uh, it's it's difficult to say. To an extent, I believe that there has to be some investment from people who have the time and resources to actually work on these projects. Um, so a lot of the scientific stack in the Python community, for example, has seen very big contribution from people who were working on university grants uh, or master thesis or production projects in companies. So entities who had the time and the resources to say, OK, contribute here because this is going to be useful to us. Well, so far, the machine learning community, especially in Rust, has been mostly hobbyists uh, trying to contribute to these efforts in their free time, which is, I think, worthy and very important, but does not provide that level of continuity that is needed to kind of build something that is going to last the test of time. Because in, if you need to build something like Scikit-learn, as you said, it takes years of efforts. Uh, and it's not something that a single person and a couple of people can easily achieve. So I think it's just a question of time. I know there are companies who are doing uh, interesting things using Rust uh, for machine learning, either because they have unusual needs. So they are doing, for example, machine learning on edge devices. So they have uh, resource constraints that the typical Python model maybe doesn't solve or because they are run by crazy enough people that want to try to do something different and they want to try to use a stack which for some reason they feel more appealing. As we see more and more of those and a little bit, the early adopters start to contribute a core of functionality, then it will be possible for people who are a little bit more risk averse to get closer and eventually they will get a community which at least can serve the basic needs of a machine learning uh, kind of product pipeline. Now, is it going to become massive? We'll find out, I guess, 10 years from now. Uh, but it's definitely an interesting space to watch. It is. Time will tell for sure. All right, Luca, it was great to have you here on the show. I'm sure that the listeners of Data Science at Home podcast will enjoy as much as I did listening to your pearls of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate your uh, participation to the show and uh, I will report uh, all the things that we have been discussing so far in the show notes of this episode on datascienceathome.com. Talk to you next time. Thank you. This episode is supported by Primal Technologies. Primal offers secure and cost-effective data privacy solutions for your organization. It generates a synthetic alternative without disclosing your confidential data. Check it out at primal.io. P-R-Y-M-L dot I-O. You've been listening to Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.